Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, we look back at the remarkable legacy of longtime multiple Emmy Award winner Bob Barker. The Price is Right host passed away at the age of 99 over the weekend. A game show historian and author and a longtime American game show executive joined me to talk about what made Barker the epitome of the game show host. Well, they call themselves a little orchestra, and there is no band out there quite like Pink Martini, mixing everything from classical to jazz to traditional pop and Latin influences. They perform in 25 different languages, no less, and have done so in some of the finest concert venues in the world, from the Kennedy Centre to Carnegie Hall to Royal Albert Hall in London. As they get set to play Vancouver's PE on Tuesday night, singer China Forbes joins me to tell us all about it. But first, with a record wildfire season still burning, along with floods and tropical storms and more, it's been a tough year for natural disasters in so many parts of Canada. How has the response been? How effective is coordination of that response? Is it time for a national agency responsible for emergency management in this country? We find out. Let's start with those ongoing fire emergencies continuing on two fronts tonight, or two provinces at least, many fronts in both those places. First in the Northwest Territories, some weather this weekend helped out a little bit. A bit of rain, slightly cooler temperatures. Uh, That wildfire burning outside of Yellowknife is now still around 17 kilometres away, so it's held. And that's a big shift in the battle against this fire that's been burning since June. Jay Boast is with the Territory's Emergency Emergency Management Organization, and he's welcomed the news but says that uh, there's still a big risk and people can't come back yet. Let us get out of the woods, literally and figuratively, and then we can start bringing you back in safe and in an orderly way. And in BC, John McLean with the Columbia Shoe Swap Regional District says, while well, fire behavior has picked up with hot and dry conditions over the last few days, so slightly different on the weather front, there has been no major growth, and that's the good news. The nights are getting longer, of course, you'll have noticed that. He says that's a big advantage in the battle against uh, that 430-square-kilometer fire. Uh, meantime, BC Wildfire Service Information Officer Mike McCulley says the wildfire has caused, quote, a massive amount of damage in the Shoe Swap region. There are significant challenges with the road network uh, due to fallen trees, down power lines, and burned poles. We're working with our partners, BC Hydro is out there working very diligently to ensure that infrastructure is, is replaced as quickly as possible. Meantime, in West Kelowna, you remember, of course, we talked a lot about that fire not that long ago. Fire Chief Jason Brolin says the McDougal Creek fire is still out of control, but the battle against it is now in the hills above the community. The firefight in our community has transitioned to a firefight in the hills above our community. Uh, Residents who have been out of their home are now returning uh, slowly but surely to their homes. Uh, I said very early on in the fire uh, that the minute people go out, we start thinking about how to get them back. Altogether, though, hundreds of properties have been damaged or destroyed, and tonight tens of thousands of people are still not back home. Uh, The work of those on the ground fighting wildfires right across this country this summer has been heroic, protecting homes and properties. But what about the overall coordination? Does this record wildfire season, along with that flooding in Nova Scotia this summer, the destruction caused by Fiona on the East Coast last September, does it all mean that this country should be looking at something like a national 
FEMA-type emergency management agency in this country. Joining me now with more on that is Gene Slick, program head and a professor in the Disaster and Emergency Management graduate programs at Royal Roads University in Victoria. Gene, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be with you again. Thank you. Right. I mean, this has been a summer, I imagine, for people in your position, this has been one where there's a lot to watch and probably a lot to learn. Yes, certainly. We've had a record year in terms of forest fires across the country and burning since May. So both an intense year and a long year, which is still going on and will be sustained for some time. What's been your assessment so far? I know it's different in different places, but what's been your assessment so far of how those emergencies have been handled when it comes to these major evacuations, uh, particularly? Well, overall, I'm going to say the response has been effective. And, you know, we can judge that by noting that we've had um, no loss of life of citizens other than one child from an asthma attack. We've had, you know, the death of four firefighters, which is tragic. Um, But we have had a large number of personnel working across the country uh, to protect both people and properties and other infrastructure assets. And we've managed the evacuation of over 155,000 people. Protect, while there's a loss of you know, households and businesses, we've also protected significant number of properties. And so in that regard, you, you, we need to say that the response has been successful. Right. And I'd imagine that despite the fact that resources have been stretched thin this year, right? I mean, we think back to Alberta back in the spring, and then it was Quebec, and now it's been uh, the Northwest Territories and BC. We mentioned Nova Scotia. I mean, there's been fires absolutely everywhere, things to respond to everywhere this year. Yeah. And so it's the the number of fires occurring at the same time, as well as the size of the fires that have really uh, challenged response capacity. But the Canadian... Uh, system. We have a Canadian interagency forest fire center that um, is an entity operated by the federal, provincial, and territorial um, governments to help coordinate the response of assets to respond to the wildfire. But anytime you've got a large number of events going on and you have a shortage of um, of people to respond, you need to draw on mutual aid. That can be from the province next door, or community next door, province next door, territory, uh, but also from out of country. And we've certainly seen that here. And so it's the events this summer really um, raised, one of the issues has been around the response capacity in Canada and what we need to do to strengthen that. Yeah, I was going to, what are the gaps? Uh, because I, I agree, it's been a, an heroic response from a lot of people this year. And we, we've talked about the homes that have been saved. We've talked about the lives that have been saved. Uh, but when we look back at this, there's going to be, I think, lessons learned. What have been the gaps, do you think? Well, certainly the issues of response capacity, I think, are still on the table and have been heightened. And one of the things that we know is that um, events highlight particular problems and they draw attention to these issues and then that helps to mobilize action. So I think we're going to see going forward further attention given to this issue about response capacity, um, both with wildland firefighters, but also um, we've seen, you know, firefighters from urban areas, so it, within Kelowna um, also involved, but we also have others involved in the evacuations effort. So it's really around how do we mobilize the resources, the human resources, as well as other assets needed um, when we have multiple concurrent events. Um, and also just the sustainment of that over time as well, because it's hard. this is hard work that people are doing and it's long hours. And this is having to be sustained over time. 
that's one of the issues. I mean, there, there's been other issues that have also come up. I think we've got issues about public alerting that need some further attention in the country. We still don't have um, the, the alerting working as effectively as, um, as it could. We need to have more channels for that. Um, and I think it, particularly, you see, recently we've seen issues brought forward about the whole notion of citizen engagement in firefighting and, and how we think about uh, the diversity of the workforce in that regard. Right. Certainly with that, uh, we saw a lot of that in the shoe swap uh, late last week here in BC. Uh, how do you begin to fix some of those issues? I suppose one of the questions I had was how has the coordination been? Because I realize that in Canada, for listeners who may not know, uh, it's a pretty the system is quite is quite uh, is quite not. I was going to say it's not random, but it's it's quite individual. It's it's provincial and it's municipal and it's federal. There's a lot going on. Right. So in Canada, the federal government essentially delegates the responsibility for emergency management to provinces and territories, and provinces and territories in turn delegate responsibility to um, local governments. And then you have a different sort of chain of command in terms of how First Nations communities are supported. And so what we see is that these are individual plans across the country for responding. And as I mentioned, there are mutual aid agreements where, where some organizations, some uh, jurisdictions can help others. And we do have the Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center that, that helps with that coordination. But it is a fragmented response in that regard, in that each jurisdiction is doing different things. And, um, and, and so generally, the same supports are provided to citizens. But we have in some past disasters um, with ice storms, one being of note when you had Ontario and Quebec each offering different kinds of assistance to their citizens. So it is delegated down. Uh, to the local government. And then when the local government's capacity is exceeded, then the provincial territorial governments will provide support. Nice to have Gene Slick here with this half hour. With us this half hour, program head and professor in the Disaster and Emergency Management graduate programs at Royal Roads University. We're talking about the summer of 2023, the spring even of 2023, just how many emergencies uh, have had to been respond have been responded to so far this summer right across the country, including the ongoing ones now in the Northwest Territories and in here in BC. And just what the response has been like. I mean, clearly the uh, there's been heroic efforts this summer to save lives and property. Um, we've been talking about it a lot in the show, but we've also been talking about the coordination and just how um, fragmented it often can be with uh, with the provinces downloading a lot of this responsibility onto municipalities who all uh, have different capacities and so on. Uh, Gene, I've seen this brought up of, of late that perhaps what Canada would need is something like uh, a FEMA, like they have in the US. I know Australia has something relatively similar. I know we have something similar, but is it time to sort of build an agency whose sole responsibility is something like what FEMA does? Well, it's an interesting question, and I think it's a, it's a, there's, um, so I'm going to say yes and no. Um, mm-hmm. So in terms of no, that I'll start there. There is a difference in terms of governance structures within the United States versus Canada. And so the role of the federal government in re- responding to emergencies, in partic- disasters in particular in the U.S., is different. They're more actively involved in, in ways that, where our federal government is not. So I think that when we think about whether or not we need an emergency, I think the better question is, do we need an emergency management agency in Canada? And so the question would be, what is the scope of that? 
And I think the idea that's being discussed about a federal emergency management agency is really about elevating to an agency status, like the Public Health Agency of Canada or any of the other agencies that are within Public um, Safety Canada, um, to elevating to an agency status the focus for emergency management, which has a full range going from prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. However, the challenge in the Canadian context, as we've talked about, is the federal government has a limited role in the response space. Doesn't mean that there's not significant work being done at the federal government level and that, and that work isn't being done in some of these other areas. The plans that we have for governing emergency management work in the Canadian context, those guidance documents are things that are approved by federal, provincial, territorial ministers for emergency management. And so those are plans that we've agreed on. So that framework for working cooperatively is there. What is in those plans are the areas where we can get agreement, where we should have um, more cooperation and coordination. And so... Coming to some sort of agency, like it would, I think Australia is maybe a better example for us, it would be really about moving from a departmental status within Public Safety Canada to a distinct agency. That, that model of agencies exists within the Canadian uh, governmental space already, as I said, like with the Public Health Agency of Canada. Right. So, so on the yes side, what would be the benefits then? Uh, one, one thinks of maybe the, the, the wide gamut that right now so much of what the federal government does is, is respond, right, is sort of help when help is needed, as opposed to that wide gamut of things that, uh, that you just spoke about. Yeah, well, so in, if, you, if you take a look at what's going on with FEMA, for example, FEMA does work on flood mapping. Um, however, flood mapping in Canada is um, under... Uh, Natural Resources Canada. And so when you talk about moving into some of those areas about prevention and mitigation, you're actually needing to work with other departments and ministries as well. So if you're wanting to strengthen the interrelationship between prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery, you need an agency that that is looking at that full scope of work and the activities that need to be undertaken. So it is something that I think requires political agreement between the feds, provinces, and territories, um, and we know that that can be challenging. Um, would it offer us a better system than we have now? Um, I'm not sure that it would. Uh, you know, with FEMA, for example, there are some strengths, but FEMA's strengths are also related to its size and also to the fact that over time, FEMA was created in 1979, and since mm-hmm. then, the role that FEMA has played has changed with further um, legislation coming into being. But that legislation comes into being after large-scale events, after things like Katrina or Sandy or 9-11 events. And we haven't had those same kind of large-scale events, in part because we don't have the population, but we also have uh, exposure to different hazards. We don't have the same kind of hurricane impacts, for example, um, we also even just see the wildfire context, the difference in terms of some of the tragic wildfires in California. Mm-hmm. So we've got it. We've got sort of different context in that regard. So I, I do think that there's benefits to strengthening what we are doing collectively uh, across the country. Um, 
groups like the Canadian Interagency um, Fire Centre, for example, might be something that would fall then under uh, a central government agency that we would have. Mm-hmm. Well, Jean, we'll leave it at that. Uh, I mean, I guess the answer is we'll see, right? I gather when this is all said and done, we're going to look back at this summer and, and try to figure out where the gaps were, what worked and what didn't, and what the responses may be. Yeah, so I think the focus is really on what can we strengthen, but without necessarily copying FEMA. So what kind right. of leadership do we need? How can we strengthen the coordination? And and also the amount of effort that we put into, you know, that whole, as I said, that whole range of preventing, mitigating preparing for, responding to, and recovering from events. Well, Gene Slick, as always, thank you so much. Thank you. Really interesting story because there's been a bunch around it in the past 48 hours or so. Uh, Today, I mean, it's all in all, it's proving to be a tough summer for air traffic controllers. Thousands of passengers today in the UK suffered through long delays and cancellations after a, quote, technical issue hit UK air traffic control systems, forging a forcing a switch, it turns out, to a manual system that has a much lower capacity for processing aircraft. So there was no real dangers, but it just the whole system clogged up. And you know these days what that can mean. Here's air traffic control expert Doug McLean speaking with Global News today. It's not an immediate safety issue. The controllers are trained to to deal with this. The system is built. If there are failures, um, there there are different ways of passing the data between centers, it just slows everything down. Indeed. And there were some a lot of delays today. I, th- I gather it's all being cleared up slowly but surely. Uh, over the weekend, though, the New York Times published this huge investigation into what it called an alarming pattern of safety lapses and near misses in the skies and on the runways in the U.S., saying that there have been no major U.S. plane crashes in more than a decade, which is great. But these dangerous incidents are occurring uh, more frequently than anyone realizes, a sign of what many insiders describe as a safety net under mounting stress. Uh, including with air traffic controllers stretched thin by a nationwide staffing shortage. That's one major factor they're looking at. Well, here at home earlier this year, former Transportation Minister Omar Al-Gabra said he'd been pressuring the corporation, Nav Canada, that oversees the country's air traffic controllers to find solutions to staffing woes affecting passenger flights there. The union representing air traffic controllers in BC has been sounding the alarm on staffing for years now. Well, joining me now with more on this is Duncan D. He's been on the show, of course, before, former Chief Operating Officer with Air Canada. Duncan, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. So it's, it's. I mean, there's been a lot. These are, are all unrelated matters, but I've been reading for the whole summer that, you know, I guess things have been going better than we had predicted, I think, with air, with, with airlines in general, it feels like. Um, but there is some real concerns over what's happening in the towers, just with staffing and so on. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've had a, a difficult recovery from uh, COVID um, on the uh, air transportation side. The first time we actually saw air traffic control issues in Canada happened last July. Um, it hit Western Canada with a outage at Nav Canada, which impacted several hundred flights, uh, primarily in Vancouver and Calgary. Um, And we saw that continue on with some ATC issues. You may remember back in January when the FAA had their outage with the NOTAM system, which effectively grounded the entire U.S. air transportation system for almost um, a full day. 
Uh, and then, um, you know, we've seen these issues with staffing, as you mentioned, um, at Nav Canada, which impacted flights uh, throughout the country um, over the summer. And just today, we saw the two-hour outage in the UK, which impacted flights departing and arriving in the UK uh, during their afternoon. So, you know, it's been a rough go for air traffic control uh, systems around the world, um, and Canada certainly isn't immune. What is what is causing it? Do you, I mean, you mentioned, of course, coming out of the pandemic, but what do you think, and you're mentioning different uh, outcomes here, there's been systems air problems, there's been staffing problems, but if you were to wrap it all up, what do you think is happening behind the scenes here? Look, I mean, I think the first thing um, to echo from that global news report is that we have an extremely safe air transportation system. So these outages, all of uh, the things related to air traffic control uh, difficulties are part of a multi-layered safety net. So people should feel very confident about the safety of the system. But what has been happening, though, is uh, during the pandemic, uh, there was a push by air navigation system uh, providers around the world in Canada, NAV Canada, in the U.S., the FAA, uh, to reduce their staffing because they frankly didn't know when the flying would return. And when you reduce your staffing in that environment and provide incentives, the people that leave are your senior most air traffic controllers, the ones closest to retirement because you're offering retirement incentives. When, when you retire those types of air traffic controllers, you're also retiring your most experienced air traffic controllers and then uh, you then go through a cycle of training and replacing those senior most most experienced air traffic controllers with brand new air traffic controllers who take time to get uh, up to speed on on their new job so yes it is a very safe system these air traffic controllers are extremely well trained they're highly skilled and i have zero Uh, doubts about their abilities, but you're also replacing these senior experienced air traffic controllers with brand new ones. So there, there are periods of growing pains, never a threat to safety at all. But, you know, some of the efficiencies that were in the system when you had these senior air traffic controllers uh, primarily in place uh, will take some time to rebuild. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if you've ever watched air traffic and drive been in a tower, the work they do is is mesmerizing because of just the amount of responsibility they have obviously something you can't teach quickly and as you mentioned i mean what's what and i think the new york times uh, investigation pointed this out very clearly i mean what exists now and the reason why we see so much more uh, safety in and around aviation is just all these multi-layered systems uh, built in but what kind of impact is this having then is it is it simply on the traveling public as far as delays are concerned Well, it's having a significant impact on um, the traveling public. As we saw today uh, with the UK uh, delays, for example, while they did not affect many of the flights going to the UK because most uh, eastbound flights, so flights from North America to the UK, arrive early in the morning and this outage occurred in the afternoon, many of the flights returning back to North America would have been impacted by delays and or cancellations, including some of the flights coming into Canada. And so while the outage only lasted for a couple of hours, the reverberations will last not just uh, over the next few hours, but also potentially over the next couple of days, because those aircraft that are delayed coming back to Canada will now be delayed going back out onto their next flight. And so you're going to see those delays uh, 
potentially impact travelers for the next few days. And let's not forget that this is an extremely busy travel week as we go into the Labor Day long weekend. Many travelers this week are trying to get back home in time to start up school or work after the Labor Day long weekend, uh, this coming weekend. And so, you know, flights are extremely full. When flights are delayed and or canceled, you're going to end up with situations where travelers may end up having to change travel plans, such as arriving later than they had anticipated. Uh, Duncan, uh, Canada, I guess NAV Canada is, is the agency in charge here. Um, they must be moving quite quickly to try to hire new people, but I, I suspect it's a slow process. It is a slow process indeed, uh, Ben, and uh, it's uh, a process that takes quite a bit of time uh, because uh, air traffic controllers entering uh, the training process, which is about a a year or so, um, must pass uh, their examinations in order to actually start controlling um, flights going into the uh, air traffic control facilities. So the, 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 the level of uh, the pass rate is is uh, is not very high uh, for good reason. Uh, we want to ensure that the individuals who are qualified to um, uh, to work those jobs are uh, absolutely tested rigorously. But you know, because of that, the process takes uh, takes quite some time. I think the good news, though, is that uh, Nav Canada has in fact been hiring. Uh, they've mentioned that they've got uh, in the vicinity 400 air traffic controllers currently in the training pipeline, um, and that uh, they're continuing to train and hire to get to the levels that they need to ensure that they have enough air traffic controllers to ensure the both the safety and the efficiency of their, the air traffic control system in Canada. And it's a crunch which air traffic control systems around the world, particularly in Canada and the U.S., are facing. Right. And, and you, I, I was reading something that you, you saw this sort of beginning quite a while ago. This is not new to the summer. In fact, this has been going on for quite some time. Yes. And as you mentioned in the intro, Ben, um, the union representing air traffic controllers has been um, screaming from the rooftops for quite some time now that this is a problem that they had long ago identified. Um, and certainly folks within the industry had been clamoring for this training to occur much earlier than it did. Uh, so, you know, we're now in the process of seeing uh, the the training um, bear fruit. We're seeing fewer and fewer air traffic control um, uh, delays caused by uh, staffing shortages. Uh, And so hopefully over the next little while, things will settle down. But, you know, it's going to take some time. We're likely to see the odd air traffic control staffing shortage affect flights well into uh, the next year. Uh, But, you know, with the time that uh, passes, we should be able to see uh, improvements, um, you know, that... uh, Uh, that will only happen as these air traffic controllers that are being trained uh, start taking their seats in the uh, air traffic control facilities. Do you have a sense of whether this has been felt equally everywhere? I I mean, I I suspect it's been felt in certain smaller airports more than in others, but maybe that's not true. It's actually been felt um, in uh, airports like Toronto and Vancouver more acutely than um, most other places. We have seen Mm -hmm. um, some days, for example, in Vancouver where every single flight arriving into Vancouver have uh, has re- have been held at departure, meaning they could not depart for Vancouver for upwards of 45 minutes to an hour. So, you know, you had a situation in Vancouver uh, just a couple of months ago where, in fact, that occurred over several weekends. And, uh, you know, in Toronto, the same story where you've had flights that were held 
at the gate, uh, unable to depart because they did not have uh, sufficient staff to um, uh, work those flights. And so, you know, the, the busiest air traffic control centers, the Vancouver's, the Toronto's, the Montreal. Uh, they're the ones that have been uh, greatly impacted. The smaller uh, air traffic control centers, even the places like Gander, have not been immune. But clearly in those places, the number of flights that are impacted are, are much fewer. If a Vancouver or a Toronto uh, uh, prevents flights from departing or arriving, that has reverberations throughout the air transportation system in the country. Right. And, and and just as you mentioned off the top, though, I mean, there are there are multi layers here to airline uh, safety. And in this case, you don't think this is a safety issue. I think part of the thing that the New York Times article was pointing to was just near misses. Right. Uh, but you think that, there, that this is not necessarily a safety issue in of itself. Look, I mean, uh, every near miss is one mi- uh, near miss too many. The, the, you know, the fact that it's a near miss means that the system eventually worked. It worked very, very late because we do not want any of these misses to occur um, so uh, abruptly, so so uh, close to the safety threshold. But the fact that we did not see any um, crash is somewhat um, of a relief. But, you know, every single near miss is one near miss too many. And I think that that's a mantra that's repeated throughout uh, the industry anywhere in the world. Now, the causes of those near misses are what needs to be investigated. Um, I understand from uh, reading both the New York Times article and in speaking with contacts in the U.S. that there are many, many factors to those, uh, and and one of which is uh, the shortage of air traffic controllers. Ben, the reason why uh, air traffic controller controller shortages uh, contribute to uh, uh, situations like this is because of fatigue. You know, when you've got uh, air traffic controllers who are who are worked longer than they're supposed to, who are called in on their days off to work uh, because uh, there, there isn't um, a replacement air traffic controller on standby to pick up a shift, then these are when these types of situations happen. So, you know, in, in an ecosystem that's so interdependent like the air traffic control, uh, the air, air, air transportation system, you need every uh, player to be uh, to, to play their role and to play their role effectively. And so that's why we need to ensure that we have su- sufficient air traffic controllers, well-trained air traffic controllers, uh, to do their uh, part to ensure the safety of everyone in the air transportation system. An easy one before you go, Duncan. Uh, what is your favorite game show? Do you have one? Oh, gosh. Um, well, uh, Jeopardy was definitely one because we watched it every night when I was uh, growing up. But, you know, with Bob Barker's recent uh, recent death, um, The Price is Right is uh, up there, too. Right. Well, Duncan, as always, thank you so much for your expertise on this. Much appreciated. And, uh, yeah, we, we all, I feel like we all grew up watching Jeopardy as a family. Thanks so much for that. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, the new Price is Right. That, that goes back a while. That was from 1972. Some sound of Bob Barker being announced, of course, as the host of the Price is Right. And I think for many of us who grew up watching that show, who watched Bob Barker both start up and then age 
with his gray hair and so on in front of us. He was such a memorable character. The show was such a memorable moment for, for me and many others growing up. Uh, it was so popular in Montreal, I once was told, um, and so popular amongst both a French-speaking and an English-speaking audience that the the ratings for the local English-speaking newscast that used to follow it were huge because so many French-speaking people in Montreal would just leave the TV on for a bit after watching The Price is Right. It was that – he had that kind of impact. The show had that kind of impact. I think for a lot of us, he felt like he was sort of a distant cousin or something because you were so familiar with his voice, so familiar with the way he looked. Um, he really was kind of the epitome of the game show host. And he didn't just land there. Of course, he'd had a long career beforehand hosting a show called Truth or Consequences, which I never did get to see because we didn't have cable at home. Um, after getting his start in radio, he uh, taped more than 5,000 shows during his career, as far as I know. Uh, he won a record-breaking 11 daytime Emmy Awards as outstanding game show host. And of course, Bob Barker passed away over the weekend at the age of 99. He retired in June 2007, telling his audience, I thank you, thank you, thank you for inviting me into your home. Here's how he said it on that final episode. I want to thank you very, very much for inviting me into your homes for the last 50 years. I am deeply grateful. And please remember, help control the pet population. Have your pets spayed or neutered. Goodbye, everybody. Have your pets spayed or neutered as well. I mean, I think that's something that all of us would picture the moment we heard him speak. Um, we'll talk a bit about that as well. And the man himself was always quite circumspect about his career and the huge impact that he had. These shows don't solve the world's problems, but hopefully I've helped a few people forget their problems for an hour or so. And if I have, why, I haven't wasted my time. They don't solve the world's problems, but they sure are a lot of fun to watch. There are there are probably no two better people to talk about this tonight than Adam Nedef, who is an author and game show historian. His many books include This Day in Game Show History and Monty Hall, TV's Big Dealer. Also with us is Bob Bowden. He's a veteran game show producer, executive producer, whose long list of credits includes Press Your Luck, Card Sharks, Greed. He helped launch the Game Show Network in 1994. They're both now affiliated with the Strong National Museum of Play, and they joined me both now. Thank you so much both for your time tonight. Happy to be here. Thank Thanks you. Having us. Uh, Bob, I'll start with you. You've been involved in a lot of game shows over the years, so you understand the formula. You understand what the magic is, um, and you've been involved with them in many different capacities, I think including The Price is Right, if, uh, if that bio uh, on the Strong Museum uh, website is, is what it is. Uh, what do you think made Barker so become the epitome of the game show host? What was it about him that was so memorable? Well, I think he came across as as your best friend, um, whether it was your your older brother or your uncle or your pal. He was somebody who just you welcomed into your home every day. And he was he was charming. He was funny. He was attractive. He made you feel uh, like you were invited to the party that he was throwing and you envisioned yourself as a contestant on his show and you could dream of being on there on that show one day winning whatever the people won and even the people who didn't win were still the stars of the show and that's what he stood for and that was what made him stand out among game show hosts yeah and, and i would i would suspect that that is he made it look very easy but that is not an easy skill oh no not at all he and particularly that show, because that show had dozens of different games. 
So it's not like hosting Jeopardy or Wheel of Fortune where it's here's the next puzzle or here's the next question or hands on buzzers. He had to know in in uh, know uh, commit to memory um, the rules of 50, 60, 70 games and uh, and performed each one of them uh, as as if there was there was absolutely no script. And it just came to him impromptu. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, that his ability just to kind of roll with it was very impressive. Adam, I mean, you, you know your game show history inside out. Uh, where do you think The Price is Right stands in the lexicon of, of great game shows? And Barker, too, because he had come from a long legacy. I don't think most of us remember him only from The Price is Right. But he was a seasoned pro by the time he helped resurrect that show back in the early 70s. Yeah, that's the funny thing. By the time the Price is Right started, Bob had already been the host of the show that you already mentioned, True or Consequences, which itself had run for 15 years. And I think most television performers would be grateful to know that they had one thing that lasted on television for 15 years. You have Bob Barker, who had a show that ran for 15 years and a show that he had for 35 years and then walked away of his own volition and kept going without him. So both of those names, The Price is Right and Bob Barker, I think merit being at the very, very top of that lexicon you've just described. Um, I didn't get a chance to work with Bob Barker as Mr. Bowden did, but I knew him as a fan the way that a lot of people did. I had that parasocial relationship where Bob was somebody that I liked having in my home. Uh, I was a little kid, and I knew right away that game shows were my thing. And when Bob looked at that camera and talked to you, there was something about him that you liked. And... He's a classic example of X Factor. You could say that he's witty and you could say that he's gracious and charming, but it's just the fact that there was something about him that you liked. There was a vibe that he gave off, and that's what you wanted to welcome into your home was just that vibe that he brought with him. Uh, also, to uh, the point that uh, Mr. Bowden brought up, and I keep calling him Mr. Bowden just because there are too many bots working at the TV. It keeps things clear. But the thing about uh, Bob Barker, in addition to having to master 70 different games of the show rotated between, you have to remember Bob Barker came up in an era, and The Price is Right operated in an era where game shows were treated as live broadcasts. Part of the appeal of TV game shows was they were done dirt cheap, and the reason they were so cheap was because little to no editing was done. So they were treated as live shows. So even though The Price is Right was done on tape, as many were, Bob had to do that show off the top of his head in exactly one hour. Um, As an example of the skill that he had, there was a nickname for a part of the show, the Showcase Showdown, which is the big wheel that you're trying to spin and land as close as a dollar without going over. And the the staff's nickname for that part of the show was The Accordion. And the reason they called it the accordion was Bob could stretch or squeeze that segment as needed. If the show had been moving too fast, Bob could drag that thing out and just and make it take as long as it could possibly take. Uh, if the show had been running long and they just barely had time to get this part of the show taken care of, Bob could keep the showcase showdown moving. So it was that ability to do that show off the top of his head, do it fresh and do it different nearly 7,000 times. And just be able to do all that and do it with a clock running in his head at all times. I, it, it's, it seems yeah. miraculous, but he's part of a generation of broadcasters who were able to do that. Yeah, without, without the audience ever really noticing whether he was stretching stretching time at all, right? I mean, you never, if, if you had to say, did you ever notice a flaw in the, in the Price is Right? I don't, I mean, maybe I wasn't watching too closely, but I remember it being pretty flawless. Well, I mean, that's the thing. He was able to zero in on things and be able to do it very organically. If there was something about a contestant that just caught his attention, 
he would just engage with them and keep the conversation going with them. And it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like, okay, well, I have to fill a minute and a half. There was just something about this contestant that he zeroed in on, and he thought to himself, I'm going to talk to this person for a minute, and he would get something out of him. And Bob said once that kind of the quintessential fan letter that he got and the perfect example of what he did for a living, he got a fan letter once from a woman who had been on the show recently. And Bob said the, the sentence that stood out to him in the fan letter was, I've never been that funny in my life. And that was kind of the job of the game show host was it wasn't that she was doing anything particularly out of the ordinary for her. It's that Bob zeroed in on something about her and just extracted it and got her to say funnier things and got her to relax and really let go and really be comfortable in front of a national audience and engage in this conversation with him. Uh, and because of that, he was able to leave this magic in which she got a bunch of laughs on her own in the span of a few minutes of the conversation with him. Well, and, and because it was, I mean, uh, Bob, I mean, it felt like there was a certain chaos on the price of uh, prices right as well, and that he was kind of the ringmaster, making sure the whole thing didn't go completely off the rails. I mean, people used to scream on their way down. I mean, it felt like pandemonium if you were watching from home. Yeah, well, Bob brought a sense of authority and and uh, what what is commonly referred to as command presence. And when Bob walked on the stage, he owned that stage. And there was nothing that was going to happen that he couldn't control and elevate. So if, if somebody, somebody fell down on the way up the stairs, he would make that person into a hero instead of laughing at that person and, and, and stopping the show. Uh, one of the things that The Price is Right was known for all these years was that they were essentially produced, the episodes were essentially produced as live shows. And right. when they did an hour show, as Adam said, it took an hour. And when the show was done, it went from the studio into the broadcast booth. And there was hardly any editing. And Bob had to do six games, two showcase showdowns and a showcase. And it always came in on time to the second. Um, he, wow. was, he was in, in those days, they, they called them hosts, but the original name for hosts that, that is a term that's somewhat lost today is MC master of ceremonies. Right. And there was never more a quintessential master of ceremonies than Bob Barker. Yeah. Uh, the other yeah, well put it. Yeah. Oh, I'm just going to stop you for one sec. We're going to come back and talk about this for more. Adam Nedef is with us, Bob Bowden as well. I can't believe you're a professional golfer. I think you should be working at the snack bar. You better relax, Bob. There is no way that you could have been as bad at hockey as you are at golf. All right, let's go. Ooh! You like that, old man? You want a piece of me? I don't want a piece of you. I want the whole thing. <laughs> the famous scene from Happy Gilmore with Bob Barker. We're talking about Bob Barker's legacy. He passed away over the weekend at the age of 99, and he left such a rich legacy behind. Uh, Adam Nedef is an author and a game show historian. He's with us. Bob Bowden is a veteran game show uh, producer, uh, and they're both affiliated with the Strong National Museum of Play. Uh, Bob, I mean, you knew Bob Barker, and it was it was funny to see what a part of the lexicon he became, and the fact that even in that scene from Happy Gilmore, he never seemed to take himself too seriously, and I think that was part of his great charm as well. Yeah, Bob Bob was very um, honest and, and forthcoming about his talent or lack thereof. 
he knew that he <laughs> had one tremendously well-developed skill, which was hosting game shows. And he always used to say, I'm not, I can't sing. I can't dance. I don't do magic. I just do one thing. And he knew that he did it better than anybody. And so there was a certain humble quality to him that just came through the, 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 the glass on your TV set. And people never, I, I don't think, but regarded him as a diva or an egomaniac. Uh, he was just a regular guy who was uh, the host. He was the guy who, who set up the party, invited you to the party, made you feel at home, and in the course of it, made people rich. What's wrong with that? No kidding. Giving away money was probably part of it as well. Adam, I mean, when I think about the lexicon of game show hosts over the years, the ones who sort of been name dropped and so on, I always think of Chuck Woolery because of the Beastie Boys, obviously. But it feels like Bob Barker actually was bigger than that. Like he was the the game show host who was the most intertwined in kind of popular culture as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, First of all, I just want to say to the point of something that uh, Mr. Bowden mentioned, he said that Bob talked about his limited skill set and how he didn't do magic. But I happen to disagree because I think every day when he hosted The Price is Right, he was doing pure magic as the host of that show. Anyway, uh, I do want to say I agree with the point that you're making about the fact that he was head and shoulders above the rest. And you still see the pop culture references everywhere. Um, In the movie Mallrats, uh, they derisively refer to the host of the game show who was played by Art James. And Art James, in his own right, was a very well-known MC at his time, but they call him Bob Barker as kind of a derisive nickname at one point. Uh, you'll see cartoons where characters are contestants on game shows and the host of the show is drawn to look like Bob Barker. So Bob left this imprint, um, not just in pop culture, but kind of in the real world. Uh, I think animal rights has really been impacted by Bob. And I think, honestly, I think Bob struck a blow for ageism. He opted not to dye his hair anymore in 1987. And that was front page news. It made national headlines that this guy was just going to walk out in front of the world and say, I have white hair. Um, The fact that you could go out and show this is what people are when they age. I'm getting older. I have white hair. And the fact that he was still accepted as the ringmaster, the fact that he was shown as the leader of the party, I think was a great example to show that, you know, these people still have something to offer when they get older. All people do. Um, And I think Bob in some way was able to, get that message across and make it part of our culture in general. And, and part of this, Ben, is that, you know, game shows in general have never been the most respected form of, of uh, consumer entertainment. Um, when, you, when you think about, you know, uh, scripted drama and scripted comedy and, and movies, uh, game shows don't generally rank uh, at the top of most people's list as, as go-to entertainment. But the fact that these are legacy shows, not just The Price is Right, but shows like Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, Family Feud, Let's Make the Deal, they've all lasted more than 50 years on television. That shows that that the genre is really more robust than any other genre that's ever been created, but it just doesn't get the respect uh, that it deserves. And, And the people who are behind it, uh, and the people who front it, including Bob Barker, never really were considered national treasures like like many other movie stars are. 
But Bob Barker right. entertained more people and gave away more money than anybody else in the history of television. Have your pets spayed or neutered? There's nothing I can say at this late date in my life that will ever surpass that. Bob Barker, remembering his legacy tonight, he passed away at the age of 99 over the weekend. He spent 35 years as the host, as the MC, as was being pointed out earlier, of The Price is Right, of course, after 15 years on Truth or Consequences. But he said he would rather be remembered for that other phrase. I suppose the most important thing that I've ever done is to help expose some of the exploitations, and they come in various forms, of um, animals. Again, he hoped to be remembered as an animal rights activist, which he was for many, 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 many years, a very public one. In fact, perhaps no one uh, had more impact on the idea of getting your pets spayed or neutered than he did by seeing at the end, using that platform at the end of each show to talk about it. Closer to home, one Canadian wildlife advocate says his death leaves a permanent void in their community. Julie Woodyear uh, camp is a campaign director at Zuchak Canada. She worked directly with Barker for many years to free elements, elephants from captivity, including three from from the Toronto Zoo to a sanctuary in California. She says his generosity for the cause was immeasurable. He was a strong voice for animals. The fact that we won't hear his voice again on that front is horrible. And I'm not sure who, if anyone, could ever, you know, take that on and, and be the strong advocate that Mr. Barker was, especially on behalf of captive wildlife. Joining me to talk a bit more about, uh, still here talking more about Bob Barker's legacy is Adam Nedoff. He's a author and game show historian. Bob Bowden is a veteran game show executive producer who has a very long list of credits. They're both affiliated now with the Strong National Museum of Play in the U.S. Uh, Bob, I was thinking, looking down all the different people you've worked with over the years, Chuck Woolery is one, I mean, there's a whole long list of them. And I was wondering what it was like to have a host who was also a bit of an activist, because that can land you in hot water sometimes. Well, in, in the days that, that Bob started out uh, putting that message at the end of Price is Right, um, it, it was not really that contra- controversial. And we weren't in a social media world like we're in today, where every word that every celebrity says is scrutinized and criticized. And, and you know, there were, there were different points of view within the animal activist community, certainly. But I think his message was you know, pretty well uh, accepted by uh, by animal, uh, the animal causes and the audience, you know, they took to it and they they knew that that, you know, his message was was not self-serving. Uh, it didn't gain him any any profit or any notoriety. It was a genuine call out call to action from his heart. And he practiced what he preached. He He didn't eat animal products and he quit the um, the, the Miss uh, Universe and Miss USA pageants because they were showing off fur coats. And he said, if you continue to show fur coats, I'm not going to host the show. And he quit the show. So, you know, he, he, he was, he used his forum on a daily, you know, well, highly rated uh, game show on CBS to get his message across. The network was fine with it. And as far as I know, there, there wasn't a lot of controversy around it. Today, there's controversy about everything. Uh, but in, in those times, I, you know, I, I think it was an acceptable message.
Yeah, and Adam, I mean, as as Bob was pointing out, he did he did um, you know he he put his mouth where his bid was, right? I mean, he did stand up for these causes, even when it meant letting go of doing certain shows, or he changed the prizes, I believe, on the prices. Right at one point, managed to stop dyeing his hair. Uh, he he stood by those those uh, those pronouncements. Absolutely, he really did, and uh, he did go a long way towards getting messages out there about animal cruelty. And I'm going to say this, and I want to make it clear that I'm not deriding anybody else who's involved but i'm i'm sure that there's i'm sure that there was a perception that thought animal rights activists were you know the picket sign wielding hippies who march up and down the sidewalk not that there's anything wrong with that but i'm sure that that's what people perceived and i think when the guy who walks out in front of a tv camera and gives away a refrigerator while wearing a nice suit when that guy goes out on the picket sign and takes up that mantle and says you know animal cruelty is a problem we need to do something about that I think a larger audience got the message, and I think a larger audience was more receptive to the message because he put him out there to be—he put himself out there to be a part of it. And it did have an impact on the show. The, they stopped offering fur coats on the prices, right, because he said he didn't want to be associated with that anymore. And it had a ripple effect. I, I'd be curious to know the exact date of the last fur coat ever offered on a game show. But I don't think I've seen one since 1990 on a game show episode. Uh, eventually, all of the game shows followed suit because Bob Barker, who was the host of the game show, The Price is Right, had been an advocate for this. So I think it led to this perception about how these other game shows look if they're still offering furs. I'm sure that figured into some of their thinking when furs were eventually scaled back and eventually just done away with altogether on game shows. And and even the famous yeah. Dicker and Dicker of Beverly Hills went out of business a few years ago. Yeah. So. <laughs> And, and I, right. <laughs> I was there then when, uh, when Bob uh, dyed his hair. I was working at CBS right. in the daytime programming department. And I recall the day that Bob uh, came to the studio and we all had heard that he was going to go gray. There was a, there was a bit of a, of a break in taping and he went gray. He stopped dyeing his hair. It grew out white. And he needed to get approval uh, of the president of CBS Entertainment to go gray on the show. And uh, he marched up and down the hallway. Uh, we all uh, looked, looked at his new look and thought, this is terrific. And it's, it's honest. It's, it's authentic. Uh, instead of a guy pretending that, you know, he has dark hair when he didn't. We just thought it was refreshing and, and uh and the right the right thing to do, and the show that that the first show that aired with his white hair uh, aired actually in the middle of the week. I think it was a Wednesday show, and uh, so the day before uh, he had the dark dyed hair, and on that day he had the white hair, and uh, he he referenced it and he came out and he said, you know, I I had one heck of a night last night. And uh, it was it was just a, a wonderful, authentic, uh, honest moment. Indeed, and that was the reaction. Really, even at CBS, the idea was that I suppose at this point he was su he was such a, a big figure at this point that he could do that. He had that. He had that power. Yeah, and and you know, to be honest, none of us were going to say, "Bob, that doesn't look good." We're, you know, we're, <laughs> I mean, we knew. Yeah. What we knew where our profits were and where our bread was buttered. And, you know, uh, unless it was hideous and nothing Bob Barker did looks wise was hideous. Uh, we weren't going to criticize it. Um, and it, 
it became a new signature for him. It did. It did. And Adam, about the scandals that happened to the show, because that was talked about this weekend as well. Of course, there was that time. I mean, this was this predated the Me Too movement, but there were, the show was not without its issues as well. And uh, Bob Barker was in the middle of some of that as well. I mean, this was uh, and, and yet he managed to maintain both his reputation and the show itself continued on. Uh, what do you what do you boil that down to down to, do you think? Uh, I think that he was able to maintain his reputation just because he knew how to ride the wave of a scandal. And I'm not going to say that Bob had a sterling reputation. There's there's a morsel of dirt under the fingernails here, at least. Um, mm-hmm. But Bob knew how to ride this out, and he had built up so many decades of goodwill that when you've built up that kind of a reputation and when you've built up that level of trust in an audience – the audience to a point is willing to write it out to you. And that's where he got fortunate with the audience that he had on the price is right. Uh, after so many decades on the air with that show and truth and consequences, the audience was willing to look at him and say, you know, we're not sure what the truth is here, but we're willing to ride this out with you. We're, we're going to give this a shot. And so Bob weathered that storm and just kept on going. Drew, I want you to keep that show on the air because I'm still getting a royalty. There's Bob Barker. Uh, wishing his successor, uh, Drew Carey, the best of luck, of course, for reasons that he points out. We're, uh, we're remembering Bob Barker tonight, who passed away over the weekend at the age of 99. Helping us do that is Adam Nedeff. He's an author and game show historian. Bob Bowden is a longtime uh, game show executive producer and producer. We've been talking about Bob. Um, I was looking back, uh, Bob, about some of the people we've lost over the past few years, Alex Trebek, Bob Barker, and you worked with a lot of, you worked with Chuck Woolery and Bob Barker and many, many others, Alex Trebek, I believe as well. I mean, we've lost some of the real giants of this business, but their shows continue. And you mentioned it much earlier in our conversation. There's something about the game show at times maligned, but it seems to have had this enduring quality. It's still with us to this day. Why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, particularly today when we live in such turbulent times, uh, I think game shows are are comfort food. Uh, They are family viewing. They're safe. They're celebratory. I mean, where else on television can you watch a show where in a half hour or an hour format, you're going to see people win things and and either – show off their knowledge or their their physical prowess or some other skill or talent and and react and jump up and down and be happy i mean we need more happy in this world and uh game shows provide that and these legacy formats uh i mean how can you possibly sit in front of your television for a half hour and not yell at the tv when you're watching family feud it's just not possible (laughs) Uh, you, you, you're so involved in it. Game shows are interactive entertainment. It's not just watching it. It's playing it and being there and, and, uh, you know, being a part of it. It's, uh, I, I, I think they're going to last forever. And some of these legacy formats, um, will possibly get many, many more decades. Right. And, and you've worked behind the scenes in these, uh, with these shows. I mean, we watch them and they seem so, uh, everything seems so perfect. Uh, and that's one of the beauties of them. And you've mentioned it with The Price is Right, and I'm sure many, many other shows that you've worked on. It is chaos behind the scenes, but somehow uh, the whole thing works, right? And, and the MC is a big part of that. 
Well, not every show is chaotic. <laughs> you know, many shows do run like clockwork. Um, I, I produce a show called Funny You Should Ask that is mm-hmm. is really a, a great, fun show to, to be a part of. It's all about telling jokes. It's all about being funny. Uh, it's, uh, it's not chaotic at all. It's actually quite controlled. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been to tapings of, pretty much every game show that that's been on in the past 20, 25 years. And, and uh, uh, they're, they're pretty much well-oiled machines, at least once they get going, you know, there's growing pains in the beginning of every show, but uh, uh, there's, there's a certain predictability and, and um, uh, process to uh, game shows because they do multiple episodes in a day. And, you know, if you look at, at a, a primetime series like Press Your Luck or Celebrity Family Feud, Celebrity Jeopardy, Celebrity Wheel of Fortune, you know, those are shows that might have anywhere between 10 and 20 episodes a year. And that entire production cycle is completed in about a week's worth of days. So, wow. you know, there's an efficiency uh, to game shows that, makes them not only exciting to watch and to play along with, but a really smart bet for, for programmers, especially in an era when costs are rising like wildfire of uh, expensive dramas and comedies. Adam, do you have any good prices, right? Trivia or things that I mean, I know, I know this, you had this day, this long series of this day in game show history books. Do you have anything about the prices, right? That we should know and Bob Barker that we should know about. Well, uh, to kind of the point that Bob just made about how once a show is up and running, there's very, very few hiccups. Uh, the shortest live of the pricing games, and they've had over 100 in rotation, but the shortest live of the pricing game they only did uh, twice in 1976 called Professor Price, which made use of a right. puppet. And uh, Bob <laughs> asked trivia questions, and the correct answer to each trivia question was a number in the price of a car, and the puppet kept score. And they played this game twice, and they just kind of reconvened and looked at each other and realized, you know, this doesn't fit in. This isn't what we do on this show. So they got rid of it. Um, that's one of my favorite pieces of trivia, just for the sake of uh, they used a puppet for a pricing game. I, I can't get that that's out of right. my head. Um, I don't think I saw that one. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, if you blinked, you definitely missed that one. Um, but as one of the interesting things we've been doing as part of this museum project is going through old memos and finding out ideas that the show almost had and almost carried out and things that changed. And it really is a testament going through all this old paperwork of the show, the amount of fine tuning that they always did. Uh, They didn't get complacent of the prices, right? They were always looking for new pricing game ideas, new ideas for home viewer contests, new ideas for how to incorporate new technology. And that's an important thing in a game show and in television in general. And I think that speaks a little bit to how game shows have endured the way they have is you can't get complacent when something new comes along. You do have to find a way to incorporate it, to figure out how you can be a part of this. Um, Just as an example, it feels like every time a new technology comes out, there's a Wheel of Fortune home game embedded for that technology. Every new video game system, you can play Wheel of Fortune on your Alexa. You can play Wheel of Fortune on your Alexa. Oh, that just ruined your (laughs) night for anyone who's listening in and have an Alexa. Alexa, play Wheel of Fortune. But uh, that's... As technology has changed, the the smart game show producers and the the adept game show producers 
and the people that know what they're doing and who are alert and who understand what's necessary have made it a point to adapt and update. And that's how game trends have survived. They adapt. Right. And a last word to both of you, uh, a thought about Bob Barker, a memory of him that stands out to you uh, when you learned he had passed uh, this weekend, Bob. Well, I, I recall um, several phrases that, that, oh, there's Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Alexa's awake. Alexa's awake. Yeah. Just unplug it. Wheel of Fortune. Yes. Sorry about that. Oh, there it is. Alexa, uh, listen. Alexa, Alexa, took a break. Indeed. Well, I, I recall, of, sorry, go ahead. I recall certain phrases that 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 uh, that Bob used to speak over the years. Uh, one was that he referred to people who were fans of the show as a loyal friend and true. Uh, that resonated with me. Uh, and a, another is that. Whenever he would receive an award, his reaction to the award was, there are many people who will deserve this award more than me, but there won't be anyone who will appreciate it more than me. And that sort of humble approach to, to life, to his work, and to his public face, I think they solidify Bob's place, not just in the game show world, but in our American culture, in our society. Uh, he was an icon, a legend, and there will never be another Bob Barker. No. And Adam, thought your thoughts? My thoughts on him, I didn't get a chance to work with the man. He had retired by the time I moved out to uh, Los Angeles from my home in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. But uh, what sticks out to me is the fact that I wanted to work in game shows for a living because they looked like so much fun and because it, it was just a delight to watch and because I always enjoyed them. And I thought, boy, it would be great to make a living doing this. And part of the reason that game shows looked like so much fun were, was because of the stellar job that Bob did. And now here I am working with this museum project in uh, Rochester, New York, with the Strong Museum of Play, and I'm working full-time in the game show business. I'm working behind the scenes in game show production. And if Bob Barker hadn't made that show what it is, there's a chance that my life today would look very, very different. It was that kind of performance that made me want to do this. So that's the impact that a parasocial relationship with this faraway game show MC who never knew I existed, that's the impact that he had, is he shaped the direction of my life. And so for that, well, I'm uh, him. And, and also well, an, another that, that long preceded Have Your Pet Spader Neutered was his sign-off on Truth of Consequences for all those years. And his last line on every show was, uh, this is Bob Barker hoping all your consequences are happy ones. And there you go. Well, I, I, Adam and Bob, I've, I've run out of time. So I, I really appreciate both your time tonight. It's been fascinating to hear your perspective on all this. You know so much about it. And thanks so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Dundas name is pretty well known to anyone who spent time in Toronto or visited Toronto, it runs right past the Eaton Centre. Young and Dundas is probably one of the most, uh, one of the busiest and best known intersections of the country. Dundas Square is a big deal. It's it's really in the hub of Toronto's downtown. 
But in 2021, Toronto City Council voted to drop the Dundas name, not just from the street, but from anything that carried it, including the subway station, the square, buildings, and so forth. Uh, so where does the name come from, you may wonder? Henry Dundas was a Scottish lawyer and politician, uh, a confidant of British Prime Minister uh, British Prime Minister William Pitt back in the late 1700s. Um, his name found itself in the crosshairs because he was seen as having delayed the abolition of slavery in the British Empire, advocating for what was a gradual approach instead of what was being called for by abolitionists uh, that you'll know perhaps as uh, such as Wilbur, William Wilberforce. The move could cost millions, but in 2021, as council approved the name being changed or dropped altogether, Councillor Michael Thompson, who is black, said it was the right thing for the city to do. The history will remember not so much what it cost us, to change the name, but it will remember us whether or not we actually take the right action. Our reputation is on the line. And here we are uh, two years later, a little bit more, and that read of history uh, about the Dundas name, about his legacy, has been in some dispute. And those who've opposed the change from the get-go say there's growing evidence that Dundas is, in fact, being judged unfairly. This month, in fact, three former Toronto mayors requested the city halt proceedings to rename Dundas Street, saying there is, quote, considerable amounts of historical evidence suggesting Dundas actively opposed slavery. They are Art Eggleton, John Sewell, and David Crombie. Uh, they released a joint letter stating that they questioned the interpretation of the research that led to City Council's decision to rename the street, amongst other things. One person who's been opposed to the change happens to share the name. A very distant relative? We're not quite sure, perhaps. But this is indeed a personal issue for Jennifer Dundas, and the retired Crown prosecutor and former journalist joins me now from Toronto. Jennifer, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. The Dundas name, I know you're not, uh, I mean, the, the questions of, of what, this is not necessarily why you picked up <laughs> picked up this fight, uh, but wow, the Dundas name has been such an important part of, of Toronto for so long, and, it, and I forget sometimes, even having lived there, what an incredibly long street it is and just how much of Toronto's uh, fabric it crosses through. It's a very, um, not only long street, like 23 plus kilometers, uh, but it is so... Um, Packed. Like it's got all kinds of commercial activity and residences, health facilities. Yeah, it's a really important street in Toronto. Right. Of course, it runs past what I would have known in the past as Ryerson University, which is now called Toronto Metropolitan University. And that's a reminder that, you know, name changes have become more common these days. Uh, going back into history to find out why these places or streets or statues uh, are what they are and who they stand for has been part of it. What happened in the city of Toronto back a couple of years ago when they decided to rename Dundas? This all started in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder. And you'll remember how high emotions were running at that time. And there was an activist in Toronto who uh, decided that he would um, start a petition to rename Dundas Street. And that in itself was kind of an interesting thing in the way he went about it. He really didn't know much about what was going on. Uh, I'm going to read you a quote here from what he said about why he started it, because you really have to hear it in his words. He said... It came out of this conversation around the Colston statue and its removal in Bristol. We were all kind of discussing online what statues we could throw in the lake over here. And from there, I was like, oh, we should just rename Dundas Street. And right then and there, I started the petition. Right, right. <laughs> so and also in Bristol, England, right? I mean, of course, there have been this has been a debate that's been happening in towns and cities across this country and elsewhere about statues and street names and 
you know, college names and square names and so on. Uh, but this is how the Dundas one began. Yes. And so that uh, petition was tabled. It had 14,000 signatures, about half of which came from Toronto. And uh, the following year, um, after staff had done some study of the issue, uh, council accepted the recommendation from staff, not only to rename Dundas Street, but virtually any city asset that had the name Dundas on it. And what was the what was the argument put forth? I mean, well, we'll talk about you, about your counter argument. But what was what were they saying, Henry Dundas, who the street was named for, and who we mentioned in the lead? Uh, but who was Henry Dundas, and what were they saying about Henry Dundas that meant that that name should be removed? Yes, yeah, so Henry Dundas was the most powerful politician in Scotland for about three decades, and for most of that, he was part of the cabinet uh, in the British government. So he was an MP and then a cabinet minister. Uh, he was a Lord Advocate for a time. But at this period of time, the controversial period, he was the Home Secretary. And uh, in that capacity, he addressed the abolition debate that was going on at the time. William Wilberforce brought forward a motion uh, to abolish the slave trade immediately. And Henry Dundas said, that's not practical. We can't do this overnight. We need to do it gradually. Let's take about seven and a half years to do it. Shut down the foreign trade, like trade with foreign territories first, which was nearly half of Britain's slave trade at the time, and then put some regulations in place to suppress the rest of the trade over the next few years so that by the year 1800, it'll be shut down completely and the legislation will abolish it and ban it completely um, it is seven and a half years hence. So because of that, because he didn't go along with William Wilberforce, William, the, the hardcore abolitionists at the time were scathing about Henry Dundas and mm -hmm. how he was trying to block abolition, which he wasn't. Uh, as scholars who look at this now will agree, um, and today it's the same argument that if you didn't right. agree with William Wilberforce, basically, you were trying to delay and obstruct abolition. And it's one of the things about this is that gradual ab abolition and delay in abolition are two different things. He was saying, let's do this incrementally by steps, starting with nearly half of the trade and the rest over time um, in steps. Uh, right. And he's accused of delay which is like, let's not do anything until a later time, which he never said. Right. Putting commercial interests ahead of human rights, essentially, uh, at yeah. the time. Right. I mean, that's that's been the argument. And, and what kind of investigation went into this? I mean, I, I know that a lot of the decisions to remove things have been done quite, <laughs> quite quickly. Uh, where I'm in Victoria, the, you know, the, the John A. Macdonald statue came down without even a debate about it as far as not a public debate about it. Um, but the, the decision here, and, and it was passed by City Hall, right, including by the former mayor, John Tory, it was agree agreed that this was a proper interpretation of the Dundas legacy, and therefore, its name should be removed from the city of Toronto. Well, that's what staff told them after doing some research over the winter um, uh, before 2020, the 2021 vote in July. And I have to say that was some of the shabbiest research I have ever seen from a government body. Um, one of the major problems with it was that it relied primarily on the person I would describe as the world's leading anti-Dundas scholar. And he, he did publish an article in uh, the Scottish, in 
Scottish Historical Review, an eminent publication. But a year later, there was another peer-reviewed article that completely demolished that, in which the author said, you know, historians have the right to interpret facts in history, but not to misrepresent it, which was a very stark and unusual thing for one historian to say about another in a peer-reviewed uh, uh, publication. But in the meantime, this is the information that council had, and, and that's what uh, they moved forward on. The other problem is that staff presented this information to a hand-picked group of uh, people representing the Indigenous and Black communities in Toronto, gave them the same information and told them that you know, he was responsible not only for this delay, but also for a plan to buy slaves to fight in the military during the Revolutionary Wars, mm -hmm. resulting in you know, Britain purchasing over 13,000 slaves. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely contrary to the facts, because in fact, Henry Dundas was the war secretary by then, but he opposed this plan to buy slaves. It was just twisted completely and made completely backwards to what reality was. So anyway, people are, you know, the city is told this, the people they're consulting are told of this, and they're comparing him to Hitler. And of course, the city ratified the uh, recommendation from staff. Jennifer, you've had a lot of support recently. I, I guess the most prominent thing that's happened in the last little while is three former Toronto mayors have come out and said, listen, uh, this is not necessarily based on fact, and perhaps you should reconsider it. Not to mention it's going to cost millions of dollars to do so in a city that's swimming in red ink. So why would you do it? Yes, that was a real game changer when the three former mayors came out with that statement, because all three are very well respected, and they are on the progressive end of the political spectrum as well. So really, all of the councillors had to pay attention to what they were saying. And one of the most uh, ardent supporters of changing the name, Paula Fletcher, actually said on uh, the, another radio station that day that... Um, she, she was going to have to go back and take a look at this now. So, so that was that had a powerful impact. The other thing that's gotten less attention, but I, in my view, ought to have a powerful impact, is that just this month, a new article has been published in Scottish Affairs, another scholarly publication and peer-reviewed, which identifies some new archival evidence never before considered in relation to this whole controversy over Henry Dundas, and those documents corroborate that he was genuinely trying to end the slave trade. And he was working with some key abolitionists who were more moderate than William Wilberforce, but still very much part of the movement. I, I mean, there are a lot of lessons here, right? And I think it's one of those, uh, we've reached a period in time where it's it's tough you know there's there's a huge uh there's a lot of pressure to try and get names changed i understand why that is i don't disagree with it but i also think and you know you as a former prosecutor and as as a lawyer as a lawyer and as a journalist understand that it, facts matter facts matter here uh would you be okay with the name being changed if the city simply said we're not changing it for this reason but but here we are or has this become something more more deeper than that do you think I, I want our family name cleared. That's for sure. And uh, and from the beginning, I'm well. In the beginning, I said, you know, it's not for me to tell Toronto what to do with its street names, but don't malign my family name and my ancestors. 
And, you know, you've got to get that straight. If you're going to do it, do it for different reasons than these false accusations against Henry Dundas. The other area where they've gotten the facts completely wrong, and this I, I, I'm astonished at. I mean, you mentioned that he never set foot in Canada. Well, what British politician did? Well, very few. Thing? Very few. Yes, indeed. Yes. But Henry Dundas paid a lot of attention to Canada. He appointed an abolitionist, John Graves Simcoe, to be the lieutenant governor of Upper Canada and William Osgood, another abolitionist, to be the chief justice. And between the two of them, they ensured that Upper Canada passed the first anti-slavery legislation in the entire British Empire. Right. Names uh, that you'll be, Simcoe and Osgood will be names you'll also be familiar with if you've been to Toronto, right? Or in Ontario, period. Exactly. Yeah, those are big names and and also very progressive people. And yet the city of Toronto still wants to change the name of Simcoe Street, which is astonishing to me. Yeah, but Henry Dundas was progressive in the policies that he had put in place for Canada on every time human rights were engaged. So it was equal rights for Francophones, putting black soldiers on the same footing as white soldiers in terms of the land and benefits that they were entitled to, protecting indigenous hunting rights and the rights for indigenous nations to occupy their lands. And he called them indigenous nations. He respected their sovereignty. And so he did pay attention to Canada and he had a positive impact. Jennifer Dundas, I appreciate your insight on this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me, Ben. There's no band quite like Pink Martini out there these days. I mean, they, it's hard to define even how they play because so many of their songs sound so different. That's what makes them so remarkable. They've been around for about 30 years. They were formed back in 1994 in Portland, Oregon, by Thomas Lauderdale. Well, he was actually working in politics and planning to run for office. And there's a story there that we'll hear. A year later, he had a former Harvard classmate of his, China Forbes, join the band. And the rest, as they say, is history. They're still together. They're still touring. And uh, they're still making music, calling themselves a little orchestra. They mix everything from classical to jazz to traditional pop, as you just heard, Latin influences, you name it. They perform in 25 Different, well, they've sang in 25 different languages, no less, and perform in as many as 15 or 16 in a single show, imagine. They've played everywhere that you can imagine around the world, from Royal Albert Hall to the Kennedy Center to Carnegie Hall and so on and so forth. Festivals played with full-fledged orchestras, you name it. Uh, here's a taste of a recent show they did in uh, Spain's, at Spain's Festival de la Porta Ferrada. That voice you're hearing is China Forbes, their lead singer. And of course, you can tell just from the song that was playing when we came into this and that one how different the styles are, right? Well, they're bringing their show to Vancouver's PE tomorrow night as part of their Summer Nights concert series. And before they do that, I mean, the show is officially billed as Pink Martini featuring China Forbes. Before they do that tomorrow night, we thought, let's talk to them. So China Forbes said yes, and she joins me now. Uh, China Forbes, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. You're busy these days. I often, I always obviously look at the tour dates coming up for any band that, uh, you know, anyone from a band that appears on the show. And wow, it really looks like you're making up for lost time from some of those years, <laughs> some of those months and years lost to the pandemic. 
It's so true. And it's funny that you look at the tour dates because I actually actively don't look at the ah, tour dates. Indeed. I don't want to know what's coming. <laughs> it's a, but there's demand, right? I mean, there is for listeners who don't know much about Pink Martini. There is really nothing much like you, as far as I can tell, anywhere in the world right now doing what you do. I agree. It seems like we are the only ones. We sing in, you know, 20 to 25 languages at any given time. And it's sort of classical mixed with Latin and jazz and tons of Afro-Cuban rhythm thrown in. And it's just, it's very different. This is a bit of a, I was reading something you'd done, or I think I was reading an interview that someone had given uh, recently about about this tour in particular. It's a bit of a greatest hits tour. I mean, if people come out, they're going to get to see, they're going to hear all the things they want to hear and then some. Yes, hopefully. Yeah. It's always, it's always sad to disappoint someone. There are so many songs that we can't totally, you know, get to all of them, but I think we do a pretty good job of covering the popular favorites. And then we have a few new songs every once in a while. So that, that works well. Brazil is a funny story because I know I, someone has asked you once, I think, whether you're whether you're tired of singing it or not. And you, apparently you only sing it as the encore. So if people want to hear it, they got to clap you back on stage. Exactly. There were a few times where people either wanted to race to the parking lot or they thought the show was over and they just, you know, petered out and <laughs> walked away <laughs> and we didn't get to do Brazil. And it just it feels not complete, you know, when we don't actually do that song. I, I was I was surprised because, of course, I, I remember your first album distinctly. I grew up in Montreal, so I speak French, uh, and, and I was pretty sure so did you. What I heard heard your you heard that record, and it <laughs> and it turns out that that you manage you and you manage to sing all these songs without actually speaking the language. You speak you know you sing in these twenty to twenty five different languages. How do you do that? I think it's because I've always been a mimic that it was possible for me to learn that many different accents, but. I did study, I, I've studied French and Italian. So those two languages are very satisfying to sing because I, you know, fully understand. But with, you know, Greek and Japanese and Turkish and Arabic and Chinese, and it's just, it's really about phonetically learning how to sing the words. And then you pretend you're a little bit tipsy and you... <laughs> Just blur them all together. And that's when people think you're more of a native speaker. That's my trick. Just like I think I can sing at karaoke if I'm a little bit tipsy, but I can't. Exactly. No, I can't at all. I can't at all. No, that, but you had fun. You, indeed. Indeed. Actually, I took Italian at university as well and didn't do that. Didn't do that well, considering I spoke <laughs> French, which was really embarrassing. Uh, but, but it's, it's, it's a, I mean, if you were to just describe the music that you play and just how the whole set works, because I gather you kind of weave these different styles through a whole, you call yourselves a little orchestra, right? And you weave these styles through the evening. So it's not sort of like we're going to do jazz. As then we're going to do Latin. It's all kind of interwoven. Yes, yes. It's definitely because each song has el- different elements that you can't categorize as one thing. So the whole set is a reflection of that. And it's fun because it's limitless. You know, we, we aren't confined by a one genre that we have to exist within. And it makes it musically really exciting because the sky is the limit. I was interested in just in the origins of the band and how, and you didn't have what one, one would call a sort of typical band beginning. You hadn't been sort of gigging in the garage for, for 20 years. It was, it, it was different. Pink Martini was bred of something quite different and, 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 and a connection made back at university, I understand. 
Yes, Thomas Lauderdale, who started Paint Martini, was in my class at university. And he moved back to Portland where he grew up and he started the band. And I was in New York doing theater and my own musical projects. He asked me to come out to Portland and sing because he hadn't he didn't hadn't found the right singer for the band. And so I, I started commuting from New York to Portland, which is three thousand miles. That's a long commute. Yeah. <laughs> and um we ended up writing the song Sympathique during that time and then releasing the first album. And then I ended up moving from New York to Portland because it was it was going really well and I wanted to just fully commit to Pink Martini at that point. Yeah. I understand I just because it happened recently that there was sort of a a connection to some extent to Paul Rubens, who we may remember as the late Pee Wee Herman, right? It's uh that yes. the band had sort of some of its origins from, from from sort of the politics around that. Well, the Paul Rubens story is that Thomas loved his Christmas special, the Pee Wee Herman right. Christmas special in which there are many different celebrity guests and it's just so over the top. And Thomas loved it and started dressing in that kind of suit. And his hair was sort of the blonde version right. <laughs> of Pee-wee. And it was a huge inspiration. And and from that special, there came the triplets, the Del Rubio triplets who were right. in their seventies. Right. And Thomas thought, I want to get those Del Rubio triplets to play in Portland. And so he was working on this campaign to stop a measure that was trying to make homosexuality illegal in Oregon. And so he threw this event around stopping this measure and he had the Del Rubio triplets open or actually start the night. And then he needed an opening act for them. So he created Pink Martini sort of on the spot. I mean, it was... Yeah, that's not your typical band origin story, right? I mean, that's not your typical band origin story at all. And yet, just so listeners understand, I mean, the the Pink Martini Project has taken you all over the world. I was looking at some of the places you played. You played at the Hollywood Bowl, the Kennedy Center, Royal Albert Hall, Carnegie Hall. I mean, you name it. And you've been there. It must have been it must have been it must have been an amazing it must still be an amazing journey that you're on. It is. It's it's uh, it's hard to believe I mean, it, the the years went by and I wish I remembered every single thing that ever happened to, to us because I cannot believe it's been almost 30 years since the band started. I didn't have any expectations when Thomas first asked me to sing of what this could become. It was, we were all just so in the moment. And now that it's still going so strong, it's, it's hard to fathom actually. Yeah. Do, do you have a favorite place in all those spots that you've played? Is there one? Because I've been, I've been to some of them. I've been inside a few of them. They're all majestic. Is there one that you've, uh, one place you've you've preferred to play the most? My favorite is probably Red Rocks outside Denver, Colorado. Right. I've never been there. It's magnificent. It's it's like a natural wonder, and you're playing under the moon within the Red Rocks, and it's just so beautiful. And then for an indoor venue, I love Royal Albert Hall in yeah, London. That's a nice spot. Yeah. That's really warm. It's a huge and yet warm theater. Somehow they accomplished that 
they built those things well back back in the yeah. day. They still do. It must. Be, what's I mean? You're playing an outdoor concert at the PNE uh, on Tuesday night. Uh, what's it like to play outside? It must be. I always. I was watching some uh, a clip you put up on social media of a concert you were doing on Costa Brava in Spain recently, and it looked great. Like it looked like a lot of fun to play outdoors. It really is. It can be so wonderful. I mean, it's very dependent on the the weather, of course. But we've had some beautiful, perfect nights where it was about 75 degrees and clear and not too many bugs. I mean, that's the best. There are often a lot of insects because of the lights on us, you know, and they're like swirling around and you just don't want to swallow them while you're singing. And, you know, some shows have gotten rained out and smoked out recently. So it's, it's a, it's a risk, but when it works well, it's sublime. Have you spent much time in Canada? I mean, I know you spent some time in Boston as a kid and you've sort of grown up in not too far, never too far from the Canadian border. Although, you know, those we, we look at it kind of differently, maybe in distance wise than you do if you're on the other side of it. Yes, I actually was in a musical with the Canadian Stage Company when I was 23, oh, Wow, 24 years old. Um, it was a musical called Once on this Island, and it, it, it started in Toronto and then it moved to Buffalo. So it was a co-production between two theaters. And I spent 10 weeks in Toronto. And you're back there. You're back I there loved it. Good. I love that city. Yeah. Ed, you're back there a little later this year. You're playing Roy Thompson Hall, I was seeing, along with quite a few other dates in Quebec and Ontario. Yes, yes. It will be so much fun. Yes. I, of course, know this because I read your whole a concert tour list, and you probably have, <laughs> you probably have it. I have it. This is a fascinating thing. I did, your, your parents were both in the theater when you were young, and, and you grew up around some pretty well-known names at a time, names people would recognize if they've ever seen uh, a majority of the movies made in the 70s, Al Pacino, John Cazale, <laughs> and so on. Yes, they they were all in the company, the theater company of Boston. My parents both worked there and we were just backstage all the time. And at one point, my sister, who's two years older than I am, got to play the part of young Queen Elizabeth in the musical Rex. Oh, wow. And she had she one night needed to go to a slumber party. So I was her understudy and I was four years old. So I was on stage with Carol. Kane and Al Pacino in this like one little moment in this play. Oh, sorry, sorry, I I mixed up two plays. That was Arturo Ui, right? And my sister was the Rex was a different musical, but I got to go on for, with Arturo Ui with Al Pacino, and and that was probably lost on me because I was four years old. But Indeed. it was pretty pretty nerve wracking, I would say. Did you, did you think you might spend a life doing what you've done or was that, was that kind of the goal? Or, I mean, obviously you, you had other, you seem to have had other plans along the way as well, but this was kind of the calling. Yes. I mean, I, I actually went on to do quite a bit of theater in college. I basically majored in theater musicals and plays and did all of that. And then when I graduated, I moved to New York and, and continued doing theater. And that's how I ended up in that musical with Canadian Stage Company. But after a few years of professional acting, I decided that it was really just music that I wanted to do. So I I stopped doing theater and I I just had my own band in New York until Thomas swooped me up and brought me to Pink Martini. And the rest is uh, the rest is history, right? The rest it is. is. <laughs> it's a lot of history. 
Well, c'est fatigué. Je ne veux pas travailler. You see, your accent was, I mean, I, now I realize you studied French or you, you spoke French, so you know it. Yes. Of, course, of, course it was, of course it was bang on. Uh, Chada Forbes, I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll be hoping for good weather for tomorrow night. Yes, thank you so much.